welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're talking about whether we should legalise cannabis. As ever, we'd like to know what you think, so if you have a question or a suggestion, then tweet us on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMindField. Now, you might notice a slight change in uh, the usual quality of Eve's voice. She is joining us all the way from sunny California. Eve, how's it going? It's great. It's very, very hot here very hot and I'm a little bit burnt because I've been sitting outside writing which is not a good idea I've learned. Oh very jealous very jealous the, the summer has, has come and gone in the UK so uh, we're all shivering we're all shivering not that, I, not that I can see any of it from the small cupboard that we record this podcast in. <laughs> the, the frosted windows yeah. But you've been uh, on the uh, the hippie trail I guess in California you've been uh, you know smoke, smoking the herb you've been you've been getting high. Well, not exactly on the job. No, I have been investigating, though, the effects of the legalisation of cannabis, which happened in 2016 here in California. It's actually been kind of semi-legal for medicinal purposes since 1996. And although there was supposed to be regulation when that came into force, stop anyone just taking it that hasn't really happened so the laws have been very relaxed for a long time and since full legalization has come into force we've seen so so many people now take up the habit and people who are already smoking some now smoking lots and lots very frequently and doctors are starting to express some concern about that. Yeah I mean I've been to LA too and I was really surprised that when you visit you know you go down any sort of high street commercial area and you'll see one of these these cannabis shops uh, dispensaries they're called which sounds terribly medical and you go in and, and they're sort of set out like Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop wellness counter has exploded and many of them have glass cabinets everywhere and you know they sell sweets and hair products and creams and all sorts of things and it all contains cannabis but you can also buy you know actual weed to smoke in your pipe and uh, and even stronger stuff i mean one thing that i noticed in your report something that i'd never heard of you can buy 98% thc crystals that you eat correct that's mental. And there's also this thing called resin. The latest trend, it's something called dabbing, which I've, I've learned of. And it's basically you get these little pots of, of resin and it's highly, highly, highly concentrated THC that they've literally just extracted from the cannabis plant. And you get a very small amount of it in a pot and you then heat that and it creates a vapor and you put it through a, a bong or a pipe and then you smoke it. And because it's so highly concentrated, you get extremely high or what you can do is get it in a sort of like candle and you can melt that and then smoke the vapour from that. So you just sort of inhale it like a scented candle? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. (laughs) And because the THC is so highly concentrated, this is where we're seeing some really quite serious consequences. And another thing that was in your report, without wanting to give the game away too much, there's a new or a rare condition that's become much more common because of these massively potent products that people are smoking, eating or whatever. Something called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome or scrometing. 
would, would you like to just explaining and vomiting? <laughs> I just are you actually? Like, I'd, I'd, I like love to see, I'd like to see it because maybe through a glass because I can't, you know, don't want to. I don't want to have anything, you know, projectiled onto me. But so. So you <laughs> is it is it a kind of combat? You scream for a bit and then vomit. I don't know. E- Eve, explain it to me. I think doctors don't fully understand what's going on in the brain, but they're only seeing it in patients who have been smoking a lot of weed for a long time at very high concentrations of THC. And what seems to be happening is that the synapses in the brain are sort of misfiring because the cannabinoid receptors, which are triggered by THC, have been overstimulated. And that causes all sorts of problems. And so the nerve signals between the gut and the brain start going absolutely haywire. And it causes this extreme abdominal agony and projectile vomiting, which can go on for up to a couple of weeks. And there is no treatment for it to stop it, apart from obviously stopping smoking cannabis. But, I mean, if anyone is still smoking cannabis, well, they have those symptoms. I think that maybe you've got a a more serious problem. Now, for those who say this could never happen in the UK, we moved to relax the laws on cannabis in 2018. There was a sustained campaign from a group of parents of epileptic children that led the then Home Secretary, now our Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, to say that cannabis for medical uses should be allowed. But most studies seem to suggest that they don't really do much at all. Is is that right? Yes. So there has been a lot of conflicting evidence. And what's quite key here is that what is only licensed on the NHS are drugs that contain cannabis, not cannabis itself. And that's the key distinction between the UK and the US. And I mean, one of the reasons that people say that, you know, legalising cannabis, particularly something that's that's probably quite commonly taken, is that you remove it from the black market, you remove the illegal element and you can regulate and you can control. But that's not happened in, in California at all, has it? No, there, there has been some reports that there's been a slight increase in police time, basically, and their ability to solve crime. So, so they're spending less time... Busting people, busting people for, for cannabis. So yeah. are able to do other things. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see Exactly. That. However, the, the reports have also concluded that this hasn't had any actual effect on the safety of the public. So we're not really sure what difference it makes, apart from, I guess, perhaps less people going to prison, which is a good thing in America because they have a problem with mass incarceration. However, on the flip side, most people who are given long jail times for cannabis-related crimes also are doing some other very serious things with other serious drugs. And of course, those people are still being arrested. And then on top of that, you have this very competitive black market, which has actually increased in popularity massively since cannabis was legalised. So the authorities are struggling to try and regulate a legal market and also control the illegal market, which is just as active as it's ever been, if not more. Yeah, so, I mean, a bit like cigarettes. People don't want to have to pay for expensive cigarettes from shops with all the taxes that make them extraordinarily high-priced now. You know, so they'll buy off bootleggers in the pub. And But this is on a mass scale. I read in, in your report that the black market for cannabis is worth more than $6 billion in the US. Yeah, it's huge. That's wild. It's interesting because somebody I spoke to told me that California have a habit of doing this. It's a syntax, basically. And the government look at something that's bad for us that we know has public health implications and think, okay, well, if there's something that's bad, we're going to just make it legal, stick really high taxes on it, and then at least we're making money from it. 
And that's a very cynical way of looking at it, but that's certainly how some of the campaigners are seeing what's happening here. When I talk to people about legalisation, they say, no, not legalisation. This is regulation and control. And it makes sense in theory to do this, especially, as I say, with something like cannabis that's so widespread. But I would say that far from being, as Sadiq Khan, London's mayor, suggested, that California is some kind of model for a utopian future where we can all happily take cannabis if we want to and it'll people who believe it's doing them good can benefit from that and that there are taxes and that the communities can benefit from those too. He has got his head stuck on the wrong way, clearly. I mean, how can you go to the States and, and not see all these problems and how regulation and control has completely flopped? I think that it's an old-fashioned view because perhaps maybe, I'm not making any comments about Sadiq Khan's age here, but maybe when he was familiar with cannabis in the, I don't know, late 70s, 80s, it was relatively harmless. You know, it made people feel a bit mellow. They were able to stop and continue with their daily lives. They used it to chill out. And there wasn't a huge amount of long-term impact because the levels of THC were so low. But that's not the cannabis that people are smoking today. And it hasn't been for quite a long time. And that's the key problem. And it's just going to get worse because you've got competitive markets who are seeking out that consumer and unfortunately because the taxes are so high it means that those dispensaries have got to charge the customer quite a lot of money which is a disincentive for them to stick with the legal market so they're going to go for something that's even more unregulated and potentially even contaminated with something on the black market. An absolute public health crisis that's been ushered in by state law really. Mm. And there's lots of stinky associations between the industry and politicians, which um, unfortunately often happens in, in the States. And the cannabis industry are becoming, you know, some people are calling it big marijuana. They're funding state fairs. They're paying politicians to support them. They're a huge, huge influence. Yeah, I mean, it's a tobacco playbook, isn't it? These companies are, are using huge financial clout and strong-arming politicians into doing their bidding. And also, like tobacco, claiming all the while that this is terribly good for us and that we should be doing this for our health. Presumably, people will look back on all this at, at some point in the future and think, what the bloody hell are we thinking? I absolutely think so. But what worries me here is that because it's so normalised, you'll get people who do have an addiction and a problem and it's just considered as by the by because that's what your friend down the road does too. And they're experiencing similar, you know, violent, aggressive vomiting episodes. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we've got huge problems with alcohol, but that's a whole other conversation. And, and, and let's talk about that after you speak to our first guest. Yes. On the line now is Michelle Leopold, whose son, Trevor, sadly died in November 2019 after a three-year struggle with addiction to high-potency cannabis. Michelle, could you tell me briefly about the role that you think cannabis played in the tragic death of your son? Definitely. I noticed from when Trevor first started using marijuana, um, he was a freshman in high school, and I knew immediately that this was not the same pot that I was familiar with. And when I educated myself, I definitely learned that today's high potency THC has nothing to do with the mellow, organic, laid back inducing marijuana that I knew of. Why did you think that? Was there signs in his behavior that made you think that maybe this is a different type of stuff? Definitely. Trevor was violent, for starters. 
so many people doubt what I say and they wonder about their own recollections of being so mellow, so laid back, so, you know, love is everything, kumbaya-ish marijuana use. And Trevor was the opposite. Trevor kicked holes in the wall. He punched holes in the wall. He punched uh, television and computer screens. He broke telephones. He was violent. There was nothing mellow about his coming down off of his THC. And he was a lovely, wonderful, loving human being before marijuana got a hold of his brain. So I definitely have firsthand knowledge that there is a huge difference between what used to be marijuana and today's marijuana. And people need to learn about the difference between 2% THC products and today's 35 to 99% THC products. Michelle, can I ask, how did he get hold of these drugs? I live in California. It is legal here. Even for teens? I, I thought you had to be over 18. Yeah, it was illegal until he turned 18. He died at 18, I say, from seeking out a higher high than what the THC was offering him. But he had his medical marijuana card the day after he turned 18. But before that, there was no shortage of friends who were dealing, and he was even dealing. There's plenty of drugs to go around, just like there was before legalization. It just made it even easier after legalization for under 18-year-olds to get it. I saw online that Trevor had a number of stints in rehabs and that he wrote he wrote a letter to you and it was absolutely heartbreaking because he, he seemed so aware of the, the harm that, that cannabis had caused him and, and the pain that it had caused you and, and he so wanted to change, which yes. makes the outcome of this story even more tragic, really. Could you just describe what happened that, that led to his passing? Sure. Well, in a nutshell, Trevor did become addicted to marijuana. We knew there were issues. He was still not a legal adult under our roof at age 16 and 17. And we did force him to go to rehab. And I do understand that addiction is a disease. And if you don't continue to take care of your disease, it will just get worse. And Trevor had the tools to help him. And sometimes he used those tools as evidenced in that letter, uh, which is public. I shared it with others so people can understand the pull of underage addiction. Uh, But he kept on using. He was sent to rehab a second time because of two misdemeanors with the police that were his violence coming down off the high potency THC. And when he was in juvenile hall, then we said we were working on rehab again. And they said, if, if rehab works for Trevor as an alternative to his sentencing, then that's fine with us. And so he ended up going again, but sadly addiction is really tough to beat. And that's why relapse is a regular occurrence in Adults with perfectly formed brains, but sadly, the brain doesn't finish forming until after age 25 as a general rule. And Trevor had been already using, had been diagnosed with cannabis use disorder at age 16. And at age 18, he 
was experimenting with other highs and took an oxycodone that was poisoned with fentanyl and died in his sleep. I'm so sorry to to hear that. It's, it's a terrible, terrible loss. And I think it's hugely brave of you to speak so publicly as you have done. What would you like to see happen legally in the States? Would you like to see uh, cannabis made illegal again? Not necessarily. I am currently working in California on cannabis warning labels, which you would think would be an obvious, easy law to pass. But Unfortunately, the cannabis industry has deep, deep pockets, and the rest of us are just volunteers who have lost our children or are suffering because of cannabis use disorder, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, psychotic breaks from cannabis. After SB 1097 passes in California, I'm planning on copying some bills that Colorado recently legislated, and they are all about youth harm from high-potency THC. That is truly my focus as a very well-respected person said, people should not be jailed for their cannabis use, but they also shouldn't be hospitalized for their cannabis use. And I'm working on stopping the huge rise of hospitalizations and sadly of deaths also. And it's primarily among our youth. Well, Michelle, we're so sorry to hear about what's happened to your family and really grateful for you coming onto the podcast and sharing your story with us. Thank you for letting me share Trevor's story. I said when Trevor was alive, that was his story to tell. But when he died, my husband and I agreed that now his story needs to be our story to tell. Thank you for letting me share it. I guess that's probably one of the more extreme stories I've I've heard. And I have heard these stories before that cannabis has been a gateway drug and eventually people begin to experiment with stronger things and something awful happens. But possibly what is much more common from, you know, my personal experience, people that I have met is that cannabis just puts this kind of blanket over some people, doesn't it? That it numbs and it anesthetizes people and that there's this sort of low-level, maybe paranoia, maybe lack of confidence. You know, when when I was young, they used to call it manana. You would suffer from this condition called manana's and you'd, you'd always do something tomorrow. And I think that that, that being under par... It's very insidious, isn't it? It creeps up on people. And things like other mental health challenges, like anxiety, these things creep up on people. I think Trevor's story ended in obviously an absolutely, you know, hellish situation. But what was quite telling to me was what happened leading up to his death. So it was more, I think what's probably more common is that you do get this violent, aggressive behaviour and personalities change and somebody becomes not like themselves and especially with high potency THC what doctors are describing is that people do become slightly more aggressive than maybe they used to be Um, as you said paranoid don't have a lot of motivation and just become somebody who is completely different from the person that they were before and perhaps developing mental health problems such as anxiety and depression which is ironic because cannabis companies claim that it's a fantastic treatment for those mental health problems in fact it's making it worse 
People often say, you know, that people are, are also completely free to become alcoholics and, and often do. And we, we don't worry about that. And, you know, therefore, why should we treat cannabis any differently? I'm not totally sure what I think about that. I mean, to an extent, it's true. But in my mind, the place I always go, the, the, the answer that I always give to that is that do we really need more stuff to screw us up? I, uh, I don't know. But I guess if people are using it, then they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that there are cases that have become even more and more common of cannabis-induced psychosis from just one joint and just one hit of high-potency THC. Some people have called it the crack of cannabis. And you don't see that with alcohol. Like, yes, you can have one very bad episode where perhaps people need to have their, you know, stomach pumped and go into hospital and, and have alcohol poisoning. But generally speaking, people develop a, a problem over quite a long period of time. And with cannabis, it's becoming even more the case that you don't need to be smoking for very long to develop quite serious mental health problems. Well, next, I, I think we should hear from uh, a doctor who can tell us a bit more about the downsides, as you say, of taking these these high-strength cannabis products. Joining us now is Dr. Ronnie Lev, who is an emergency doctor working in San Diego. Dr. Lev, you're on the front lines of this problem. What are you seeing in terms of cannabis-related complications on a day-to-day basis? So every day when I go to work, I treat cases of marijuana poisoning. Everything will shift. Uh, I see patients with cannabis-induced psychosis, scrometing, or what people call cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, drug interactions, various heart complications, lung complications, children who have accidentally poisoning. Um, There's not a shift that goes by that I don't see some type of marijuana poisoning. And do you think that that is related to a more relaxed attitude to cannabis. So has, has things got worse since legalization? Absolutely. And it makes sense. The more a drug is available and the more frequent that it's used, the more safer people think the public is, the more complications we would see. And to what extent do you think the supposed health benefits of cannabis has played a role in this as a medical professional that must be incredibly frustrating for you that it has this almost like a health halo people think that it's almost like a supplement like something you take to make you feel better right and you know there's always partial truth in misconceptions right so cannabis is a plant with 500 different chemicals in it including some toxins but also some chemicals that have therapeutic effects So the FDA has authorized and cleared THC to be used as a medicine and CBD to be used as a medicine. I can write a legitimate prescription like a regular doctor would for Marinol, for people with end-stage cancer or AIDS wasting syndrome, or I could write a prescription for Epidiolex CBD for babies who have a very rare type of seizure disorder like Dravet syndrome. So there are therapeutic effects some of the chemicals within cannabis but that doesn't mean that the plant with 500 different chemicals including toxins and contaminants are safe for massive use by the public. Dr. Lev, one of the reasons that we're talking about this is because UK politicians have recently visited California, specifically the the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, visited California and was so inspired that he came back and said he wanted to set up a a new body that would explore doing something similar, legalising cannabis in the UK. 
What would you say to him? Would you say that it was a good idea? I would say to him, come visit me in my emergency department and see the other side of things. If you just went to the dispensary, they are very impressive. They look like the Apple store. They're, they're shining. It's beautiful packaging and people are bustling in with business. If, if you are pursuing profit, then it looks very attractive. But if you're someone like me who is involved in healthcare and medicine, I see a very different side. The thing is, in California and and many other states now, it's been so long that cannabis has been widely available and it's such an industry. Where do you see this going? I mean, the health problems will continue, I presume. What would you like to see happen? Well, what what I see happening now is, you know, I've been an emergency doctor for 30 years. So we're, we're the canary in the coal mine and able to see what's happening in society. We're a good thermometer for that. And we're there for the public for whatever happens. So it's just frustrating and sad, really, because you see things that could be prevented. And I also see history repeating itself. So when you ask me, where do I see this going? I've already lived through this now, right? I saw what happened with tobacco. Tobacco was a plant. Nobody died from one puff. It was safe. Everybody was using it. We were giving it out to soldiers. And then finally, people admitted the truth that it was hurting people giving, you know, associated with lung cancer and emphysema. Not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer or emphysema, but it's definitely a risk. And then there were lawsuits, right? Oh, you know, against the tobacco industry and settlements. And there was an outcry. So we've lived through that. Now, we just came out of another very similar issue with opioids. Opioids are safe. Nobody gets addicted. Nobody should be in pain. Um, and then there were the health consequences. We were right in the front lines of that in the emergency department. And now the lawsuits against the opioid industry. So now we're at the beginning kind of of the swing with marijuana. It's safe. It's a medicine. No harms from it. It's just a plant. We're seeing the harms of it in the emergency department. And I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but I have no doubt that in the future, you know, there'll be an outcry and there'll be lawsuits. And in the meantime, there were lots of profits to be made. I mean, it's interesting you mention opioids because, I mean, it's a case that's been going on and on. But the Sackler family have, have been accused and, and found guilty of out and out lying. That They decided, you know, this was a way to make money. So we're going to pretend a whole bunch of things that will make sure that doctors prescribe this and incentivize it. So you think similar kinds of corruption have gone on with the cannabis industry? I, I don't know if I'd call it corruption, but I'd say very similar playbook in, in pushing a drug. In a lot of ways, you can, you know, copy paste what happened with tobacco, opioids, and now on to marijuana. But actually, you're doing it better because you learn from each time and marketing skills and lessons learned are, are, are even better than they were for tobacco and for opioids. And you mentioned children. What's the youngest that you've seen in in your emergency room? So the the number one cause of pediatric poisonings in the United States at any hospital with children is marijuana. It's it's, uh, very sadly common. We've seen babies, as long as they could crawl and start putting something in their hands, that has happened with marijuana. Sadly, it's happened even with fentanyl. Oh, terrifying. Well, Dr. Ronit Lev, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us today. It's been fascinating. Uh, A pleasure and thank you so much. Good luck.
Well, that's very sad, isn't it, Eve? That one of the leading or the leading cause of child poisoning is now cannabis in in many hospitals in the states. No, that's absolutely that's really stark, isn't it? But I guess it makes sense with the how widespread it is, especially among you know eighteen, nineteen year olds. I keep going back to conversations that I've had with people about the term is regulation and control of all drugs. But something that was really interesting in your report, the idea that you could even do this was fanciful. And uh, there was a chap that you met in Compton, a local politician, who really poured cold water on this, this idea that it was possible to take drugs and simply regulate and control them by their nature, that there was a criminal aspect to it. Absolutely. I think it was really interesting that that came from Compton because you would sort of assume that, you know, if anywhere that was going to embrace free drugs, you know, as in, you know, you wouldn't go to prison for it, it would be Compton, an area that's been marred by terrible, terrible uh, drug crises and lots of people taking drugs. They had a crisis in crack cocaine in the late 80s. But actually, this has kind of scarred people and made the residents really aware of the dangers of drugs, not just in terms of the health implications, but also for their local community. You see in Compton, where actually now, because of a charter in the in the 10 mile radius, you can't actually set up a cannabis dispensary, which is very unique in compared to the rest of LA because the residents voted against it but when there were illegal operations going on there were often shootings outside them because you would get gangs coming to the dispensaries trying to steal the drugs because having a large quantity of marijuana in one batch can make a shed load of money so obviously wherever you've got these high price items you're going to get crime in areas where they are vulnerable to crime and I found it interesting that outside every dispensary there is an armed guard which sort of tells you something about the industry and 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 the product really and i guess the way that to to actually improve the entire situation is to improve people's lives improve education for children improve access to healthcare improve housing you know really support people i guess the other place that people often go in this in this conversation is is actually it's not enough to just legalize cannabis you've got to legalize all drugs But again, you know, if you've got a problem with legal cannabis in the States stimulating the black market, you know, you really don't want to go there with amphetamines or heroin or fentanyl or God knows the disasters that could happen with stronger stuff. Although it does sound like cannabis is is pretty wild as it is. I think that there is this move towards thinking counterintuitively about things it's slightly kind of wokery i think that why should things be illegal does it even make a difference anyway does it improve public health does it improve public safety and i think it's an all too easy answer to just say yes (laughs) you know if things are a threat to public health they should be illegal and i don't think that should be such a controversial idea well you've lost all cool creds i'm afraid eve this in this conversation i'm very sorry but thank you for the report I'm very sorry about that but once you've heard about scrometing there's not really much you, right, you, no, can, yeah. you can do well you can read the full report in this weekend's the mail on sunday uh, in good old-fashioned newspaper form or on the app or by visiting mailplus.co.uk and we'll be back with another topic on medical minefield next week so we'll see you then goodbye